maybe they come into the room and they sit down and their consciousness expands to possibilities and they feel like they see that there are no limits to something and that seed gets planted in them and a couple years down the road maybe they come back Hello, yogis, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Dharma Talk. I'm your host, Henry Winslow, and this is episode number 43. Now, before we get into the meat of the episode, first I want to make a big shout out and thank you to my friend Eric Yagoda down in D.C. for making a donation to support Dharma Talk. Eric, thank you for making a financial contribution that helps to cover not only my expenses, but make it possible for me to devote more time to producing this show for all of you. So thank you. If anyone else ever wants to make a donation, you can always do that on my website at henrywins.com or dharmatalk.show. Now about this week's episode, I'm interviewing my friend Jordan Lydia. And Jordan Lydia is a powerful case in point in the transformative capability of practicing yoga. I entitled this episode, See the Possibilities with Jordan Lydia, because not only can you see it in her body and her attitude, but it's also something that she champions as a mission for for her teaching. We talk specifically about a combination of yin yoga and Bikram yoga that she's used to overcome the physical effects of scoliosis and feed her soul and spirit. They've provided contrasting yet complementary meditation practices for her and paths of healing. We also get into karma yoga and what it means to be a standard bearer for the broader community as a yogi. And finally, she explains how to integrate yoga into a busy lifestyle, even if you have a career outside of yoga and the wellness industry. So even if you're not a full-time yogi, how you can integrate yoga into your life, both theoretically and practically. So please stay tuned through these announcements and we'll dive into my interview with Jordan Lydia. Yogis, I have several events and workshops coming up in the New York City area that I hope that you can join me for. On January 26th, I am teaching a workshop at Three Jewels NYC on hips and twists, yoga for digestion and blockage release. On the weekend of February 15th through 18th, I am co-leading an immersion at Lighthouse Yoga School with my friends Jared McCann and Aviad Sasi. This is a great opportunity if you've been looking at going deeper in your practice, but you're not quite ready or maybe not interested in doing a teacher training. We're going to do all-day yoga, including asana classes, pranayama and meditation, posture clinics, and all sorts of yoga conditioning work as well. Also, you'll be surrounded by like-minded people who are interested in advancing their practice. Finally, I am giving a workshop at Yoga and Fitness Herald Square on March the 2nd on sun salutations. So if you're interested in joining any of these events, head on over to henrywins.com events. And for the immersion, don't forget to drop in my referral code henrywins to get 10% off the tuition. Okay, that's it. Hope to practice with you soon. Enjoy the interview. What's your purpose? 
What's your vision? What mark will you leave on this planet long after you're gone? I'm Henry Winslow, and you're listening to Dharma Talk, the only podcast where I interview inspirational yogis on how they're changing the world in their own unique ways. Whether you're still searching for your purpose or already walking the path, I hope these stories get you excited to live your dharma. Hello, Dharma Talk community, and welcome back to another episode. Today, I have my friend Jordan Lydia on the line. Jordan Lydia is a student and teacher of yin and Bikram yoga, and through these complementary practices, she has overcome the physical effects of scoliosis and fed both her, quote, soul and, quote, spirit sides, and we'll get into more of that soon. She has co-led teacher trainings, co-authored yoga manuals, developed a community of practitioners of the Advanced 84 Asana Series in Seattle, and won first place in the Washington State USA Yoga Championships twice. Outside of yoga, Jordan is trained as an archivist, and she believes in chasing down one's dreams while keeping a day job. So... Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, I know yeah. you've listened for a while, so I appreciate you taking a turn at the microphone. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm honored to be here. And yes, I've been enjoying the podcast and listening to friends in the community. And I just I look forward to it every week. So thank you for having me, Henry. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for your support and in, in listening to the show and, and sharing it out. And I think it's it was only a matter of time before you got on here because you're a very <laughs> passionate person and have a lot to share yourself. So I've been looking forward to this. And for the listeners who know you, I'm sure they are too. Let's let's get yeah. right into it. What does the word Dharma mean to you and what is your Dharma as you understand it today? Uh, Dharma to me means calling or purpose or meaning, and I think it is separate sometimes from your passion. Um, You can be called to something, and it can be still something that you struggle with or have to do. Um, My personal calling or Dharma is that all beings are limitless, and beings to include like animals in that, and uh, just approaching each situation, each person, um, with that mindset of having no limits. So that is my personal calling or my personal Dharma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) That's an interesting point you, you bring up the, the distinction between calling and passion. Is that, um, is that like a, a conflict that you faced quite a lot yourself? Um, I think so. I think that it's a, uh, you know, one of my teachers that I really look up to, Whitney McCormick, he told me one time, like, Jordan, your life is not your own, meaning that like you're here to offer, give service to community and those around you. And just to look at that like mindset and to look at yourself differently and to look at what you're really offering um, those around you and your community and your purpose. And sometimes, like, uh, you know, the things that we're passionate about don't always necessarily align with our calling. Sometimes there is an overlap of them. But sometimes having a calling uh, asks you to, like, dig in really deep into yourself and draw forth things that maybe um, you didn't expect that you could or didn't necessarily know how to access. And I think that's why aligning with a calling or a purpose, like even when it gets hard or when, even when it gets painful or you're forced to sit with that discomfort when you don't want to sit with that discomfort kind of pulls you through 
those um, those harder times or those shadow times of trying to live your purpose. So mm-hmm. even with passion, there's always a little bit of agony and ecstasy. <laughs> even with the passion, there's always a little bit of pain in the process as well. So. Yeah, definitely. I think yeah. with any um, anything that you become passionate about, by nature, your emotions get wrapped up in it. So there's always going to be highs and lows and you get pulled along for that, for that ride. What you said sounds like it really comes from firsthand experience. So let's make it specific. You know, what, what in your past did you (laughs) feel like you really felt called to do that didn't necessarily come naturally? If I interpreted that correctly. Um, Yes. Uh, I mean, practicing yoga didn't come naturally to me. Uh, teaching yoga didn't come naturally to me. It's some I've had to work, uh, like I felt called to do it, but I had to work extremely hard at it. I would teach a class and then get done teaching and go like sit and cry in my car <laughs> for about 20 minutes. It was like a really painful, cathartic experience for me, but I felt like I had something to share with people and I wanted to really offer that, um, and that I was, it was required me to step into this discomfort and uncomfortable situation to expand my consciousness and to offer that same, those same tools to other people. So I had to work really hard at being a practitioner. Um, when I first started yoga, I was like my, I had zero proprioception of my body. My spine was a complete mess, like on the emotional level, I was dealing with a bunch of things too. So it wasn't something that I came naturally to me. And same with teaching. I was pretty shy, um, didn't feel like being up in front of people, but I continually felt drawn and called to do it. And so through a lot of process and a lot of hard work behind the scenes, um, I, I now feel like I have a little bit of confidence in those areas, but I still get super nervous every class I teach. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think the the struggle of starting from really ground zero as a practitioner positions you in a good place to be a teacher, right? Because you have all of those memories of what it's like to have no idea what's going on. And as long as, as you progress through your practice and, and start to build that skill or knowledge or whatever it is, as long as you can remember that, that beginner's mind and keep elements of it and stay interested, then you're always going to be well positioned and, and well prepared to teach, even if it feels, you know, nerve wracking. So I think that's yeah. actually great. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I completely agree with you. And for the first like few years in my practice, like, you know, I had to, uh, you know, I came into my first introduction into yoga was Bikram yoga. Um, I read a blog post about somebody doing a 30 day challenge and I thought there could be nothing more intense in this world. And I was really drawn to that. I don't know why. Um, so I went into the studio and, um, it was, it was very intense. Uh, and I discovered a lot about myself that I didn't even know that I was, you know, not, not dealing with, um, and just on a physical level, emotional level, mental level, spiritual level, like all of those things were misaligned in my life. Mm. And just that struggle, uh, I just remember that feeling like when you're in the class, it's a survival class. <laughs> like you can't think about anything else and it triggers this fight or flight in you. And uh, you're not supposed to leave the room. So you can't fly, like flee the situation. So the only recourse is to fight and to fight for yourself and to to really embrace that struggle and to lean in and look at yourself a lot differently. 
So I just, you know, when I teach, I always think about that and starting at the bottom, I used to lament like starting way at the bottom in yoga and wondering why um, some people were more talented than I am. But I've really, truly believe that, you know, your willingness and hard work will overcome any talent or lack of talent that you have in the long run. So if you are in a fight or flight situation and you cannot flee, then your only choice is to fight. Isn't yeah. that, that is so true? Amazing. <laughs> what a, I mean, that's just a powerful insight unto itself right there. Um, you know, I introduced you as saying that you've overcome the physical effects of scoliosis, and, and you alluded to that a minute ago, too. That You also said that you have fed your soul side and your spirit side through Bikram yoga and through yin yoga. So can you talk a little bit about what all of these different um, healing mechanisms have looked like for you? The physical side with your spine and then the soul and spirit dichotomy thing. Okay, sure. Um, physical side with my spine first. When I came into Bikram yoga, my whole spine was completely crooked. Um, when I would backbend, it would be fit like crooked to one direction. I had really hunched shoulders, swayed pelvic girdle. I had a lot of back pain. Um, so dropping my head back, it like hurt like hell, like it did. Um, and that was like a big step for me. So I used to set up in the room. I'd line myself right up any of the joints of the ceiling tiles so that I could put my fingers straight up and line them up when I would backbend. Sometimes I would backbend towards the mirror so I could see my spine so I could move it into the other direction. Um, wall walks really helped to heal my spine. So I'm a big believer that all backbending heals the spine. Uh, you know, the Mary Jarvis Esoc lineage. And then I found yin yoga very shortly after Bikram yoga and started to open up my hips. So the spine, just the way that it's organized, it will move a little bit more quicker than the hips, but the pelvic girdles, there's a lot of tense fibrous tissues in there. And so yin yoga, I would kind of yoke the right and left sides to make them start to get more aligned. And so I used both of those modalities to heal myself um, physically. And on like an emotional level, when I first started Bikram yoga, I you know, it was, I had major depression for three years. And um, in Bikram yoga, there's like a lot of those. So the spirit side of it is that there's a lot of yang energy. It's action, it's, action, it's um, creation, it's movement, and just harnessing those aspects in your side, yourself, like the sun side, and reflective, restorative, and passive, and um, contemplative and to be able to sit with yourself and just notice yourself in those positions and what comes up. And there's even, I feel different ways of meditation too. like a yang style meditation is intention driven. It's action driven where yin meditation style is a little bit more soft and unfocused and just kind of experiencing what comes up. So for me personally, it was the combination of those two that allowed me to, um, heal a lot of layers of myself and continually uncover. Yoga, I feel like, is a passive healing. I think so many times we want it to be a passive healed, passive or past tense. Um, but once you go through one layer or kosha, it's like rushing nesting doll, then you go a little bit deeper or sometimes you have to move back to the physical again if you have an injury or something going on and then go back into the emotional again. So 
I feel like both of those um, modalities, for me personally, were really big compliments in accessing a lot of um, different ways of healing myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I agree. I mean, I've had a similar experience. I started off with Bikram yoga almost exclusively, um, very religiously practiced it and craved everything about the fiery, young energy of it. I mean, it's it's literally heated to 105 degrees in there. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. It's, it's kind of hard to deny that it's it has that energy into it. And it and it um, penetrates you and, and it makes you feel that way and approach the practice that way. But then once I started to trickle into other things, including yin yoga, it became more interesting and more possible to take different mental approaches and cross them into other practices. So to take the yin idea, the the patience, the receptivity, and put it in the Bikram practice. And yes, e- even vice versa, you know, and I'm, I'm yes. sure you've had an experience with that too. I, I love what you said about the meditation. People think of meditation as being this like just... I don't even know, it's like sitting still in total peace, but there's a lot of different things that can be happening in your mind when you're sitting yeah. still. Yeah, I for the first while when I was in yin yoga, my mind, I would just let it wander all over where it would go because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. And it would just go down these wormholes or rabbit holes, what have you. Um, and it wasn't like, and then I, and that is okay still. That's wonderful still. But when I started to actually I believe that um, in yin yoga, the sensations in the body become the meditation and just being able to focus in on those sensations and to stay there and kind of just have that soft awareness of them. Whereas I feel like Bikram yoga, the, the mantra, the dialogue becomes this, uh, the dialogue becomes this mantra, this rhythm. So it's, this, it's a different type of meditative aspect I feel from each of the different practices. Like it, it accesses different parts of me. And I think that it's good to look at yourself prismatically instead of just like one thing will complete me. Um, so yeah, even though I love each of them and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I'm total fan club for each of those styles. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, in, in both of them, you're, it's important not to check out, right? But right. for a, a dialogue driven class, you've got a teacher giving you words like a metronome, keeping you on pace. But mm-hmm. when you're on your own to steer that, it's a bit more challenging, I think, honestly, to stay focused because it's up to you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think yeah. that yin on the surface can appear like a more simple kind of practice, but it can be a really intense, deep experience for a lot of people to just sit with themselves and sit with that discomfort. You're in the postures and you're uncomfortable and then on a mental level, you're experiencing some discomfort as well. And, uh, you know, you have to sit with yourself. And a lot of times we're asked to sit with ourselves in discomfort and things that we don't want to sit with outside of the room. So if we can find a way to do that in the class, then it makes it, um, we practice that skill. So outside of the room, we can remain still. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. So I I imagine that your current yoga practice is kind of a combination of these two um, lineages of yoga that have been so important in your healing process. But are there other aspects that we haven't talked about? And that's the first part of the question. Second part of my question is, I know that um, you are a big fan of the 84 Asana series, as am I. Yes. 
And I'd love to hear your kind of philosophy around that because a lot of people think of it as being something that's intimidating, maybe not to be practiced or, or taken lightly, but you do it on a very regular basis. So yes. Yeah. So my current practices that I practiced, um, at least two to three, 26 and two expanded classes. I know you're familiar with that. Um, then 284s a week, uh, yin, I make sure to get like at least one studio class because I like to practice at the studio that I'm teaching at. And then I'll do yin at home as well. And then um, I've also been dabbling in vinyasa to just, you know, like I said, when I first started, proprioception, my kinesthetic awareness was really poor because when your spine's completely misaligned, you can't feel your body in the space. So it's been good for me to be introduced to more movement, um, to be able to, you know, find my body in the space in a quicker, quicker pace, which wasn't accessible to me the first few years of my practice. Mm -hmm. And to your second question about the 84. Okay. I, (laughs) Anybody who knows me around Seattle knows that I like, I love the 84. It is, uh, it's like completely spiritual for me. It's my family. I feel like a built family community around it. And I consider it to be a therapeutic practice when practiced mindfully with discernment and with patience. I totally believe that. I don't turn anybody away who wants to come try the practice. Maybe they're not ready for it that day. Maybe their body's not, but maybe they come into the room and they sit down and their consciousness expands to possibilities and they feel like they see that there are no limits to something and that seed get seed gets planted in them. And a couple years down the road, maybe they come back. When I first started 84, I was interested in doing the yoga competition. That was part of the path to do the yoga competition was, you know, you got to go to advanced class if you want to do the yoga competition. I first started competing about seven years ago and I had no business being in the 84. Like I didn't, I could do the 26 postures moderately well, (laughs) maybe that's generous statement. And then a couple of the 84 postures and I, but the teachers, they just loved me and they just embraced me and I kept showing up and I kept showing up and I just felt something about that practice. I feel like it's deeply spiritual. It makes you feel whole, complete. Uh, I feel like if everybody in the world was at least exposed to 84, like the world would be a more kinder and gentler um, place. I don't actually like calling it the advanced series. And even when I'm in class, I call it the 84 series and I'll call like the the beginning series, the 26 series, because I see them as like just different, different parts of the same whole. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so that like, that's my personal like feeling on it because I couldn't do hardly any of the, the postures at all. And just set up by set up posture by posture year after year, it's just completely expanded. And I'm always now, you know, chasing new limits in a way complete, like, or pushing the limits of myself and just changing my mind about what I can do and what I can't do. So Mm -hmm. I noticed that you said that when you first took the class, the what was called advanced class, then now it's being called other things more frequently, um, that you had no business being there. I take it that that was your thought then and not now, right? Yeah, that was my thought then. I was very intimidated, but I had an amazing studio owner at the time who 
you know, referred me to another studio to go to. And she, you know, she encouraged me also to do the competition when I first, uh, championships, when I first demonstrated, I came in last um, at the demonstration, just so you know, like on a physical level, but it didn't matter to me because emotionally that level of confidence that I felt like completely transformed my life to be able to get up there and share something so intimate and so vulnerable with people and to just be there and be present. That was huge transformation for me. But yes, at the time I felt like I had no business being there, but if I was to teach myself, you know, seven years ago, I would, you know, embrace that and welcome, welcome me in as well. Yeah. When I first practiced that class, it was kind of a similar situation, which I think it was, that was the standard at that point in time where the class was never advertised on the schedule. It was basically kept a secret and people were actively discouraging you from coming. And it was like, okay, you got to take the the hot beginning class first. (laughs) And if you're still standing and you still want to do it, come talk to me and then you can come in maybe. But you know, I think as discouraging and like mired in red tape as it was, there was something about that that built some intrigue and opened my eyes to the exact kind of revelation that you had in there, which is like, look at all these possibilities. I thought like, okay, I'm doing pretty well in this, in this class, like, but what else can happen? And you go in there and things are, people are doing things with their bodies and a calm face that you think are totally unrealistic. And it's like, okay, there's something here. And that's a powerful experience to have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Padahastasana in the beginning Bikram class, that blew my mind. (laughs) So when I went to 84, like my mind, like it was completely gone. I was in the astral sphere. Like I couldn't even process everything that I had just witnessed and experienced. So it's amazing. And I think, I think the 84 it's, you know, it's, it's been around longer than the 26 and it's really ancient. And I feel like the path forward for the 26 is actually through the 84, maybe not as many people practice it, but those practitioners who go to the other classes, they become the standard bearer um, for the community and just help to keep the vibration high and to hold that higher vision. So what do you mean by that, by being the, the torch bearers or the standard bearers? I think that if you're, if you go to 84 or if you're, you know, you're seeking more and it requires a level of like responsibility and commitment to your practice, um, it's not for the faint of heart to like go <laughs> uh, for two hours on and, like usually at the least convenient times during the week <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, um, and to practice and to be fully engaged with that. And I think that um, then I at least I preach in my classes to the students that, you know, they need to have some offering back to the community as an 84 practitioner of some kind of karmic service, whatever that may be. And you know, we have some students who bring fruit after the 84 or just like folding towels or something like that. And I think that they go into these other classes and they become the standard bearer and they go back to their communities because right now um, our main offering of 84, we pull from people who, you know, live in downtown Seattle and live, you know, across the way and that kind of thing. So that that unites us as a larger community, at least in the Pacific Northwest, and to become the standard bearer in these other studios. And to not just be, um, you know, students or to take a yoga class, but to be yogis, 
mm-hmm. think there's a difference. So. Definitely. Yeah, that's and, and you're so right. And that experience rings true from what we've seen over here on the East Coast, too. I remember back back then when I was doing it the traditional way, when it was hidden between the class schedule and stuff, that there would be people coming into New York to take class from Joseph Insignia or, or Gloria Suen or whoever was teaching it. And they were coming from like Philadelphia. And yeah. that was cool because we had this little group. And it's not to say that it was meant to be elite or exclusive in any way, but there was a community, a sangha that was built around that. And naturally you feel sort of an obligation to be a representative of that when you step away from Mm -hmm. it and go back to your home studio, if that's not where you practice. So it's cool to hear that that's, you know, kind of a, maybe not universal, but it's a widespread experience that, that you've felt as well and been a part of. Oh, sorry. I had somebody say to me like, Oh, I bet it's like really beautiful to come watch the 84. And I was like, well, there's a lot of struggle <laughs> in, and we're failing a lot. But I think as practitioners, um, practice is a mechanism of controlled failure. And when you fail like that, you become vulnerable with each other. And that creates a huge intimacy and trust with the 84 practitioners that, you know, that I can't, I don't know how to replicate anywhere else. And they've really become my family. And just that, like, really deepen the bonds that way. So, yes, yes, that resonates really, really a lot. I mean, that's, that's so true. I mean, you practice with people on on an ongoing basis consistently, and you don't even have to say anything to each other. You just feel connected. Mhm. Mhm. Absolutely. So yeah. you know, what kind of stuff do you do for your karmic? Um, responsibility if you're encouraging the students to do that how how have you led by example um lots of different ways uh so i don't but i'm actually like i'm pretty good at like remaking signs and stuff like that i'll see something that needs to be done if like and i'll make that as well i have for like eight nine months this year i did karma yin community classes every week um honestly last year during 2017 i probably taught (laughs) for free more than i got paid (laughs) to teach and that was because i kind of i believed in what i was offering and making it accessible um to people like that and i'm grateful for my day job because it allows me to be able to offer these opportunities and not have to worry about you know, where, how I'm going to pay my bills or that kind of stuff. So lots of teaching for free, um, just looking for opportunities to serve the communities What that I come into, whether that's, you know, taking out the trash, even if you're not asked to, folding towels, um, you know, being supportive of other practitioners and their practice. I think as a teacher, it's sometimes hard to swallow your ego <laughs> And you can, you can be working on something for years and have this uh, insight into it that's taken you years to cultivate. And then you have to give that to your students right away and it quickens their process. And they get it maybe in a couple of weeks where it took you years to, to draw that forth. And that's part of, you know, being all beings are limitless and to offer that and to hopefully have your students I think the ultimate goal of a teacher is to have your students surpass you one day 
and to be able to learn from them. So and that was kind of roundabout. I hope that that was okay. No, that's so great. We're really, really tangential. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll, I'll follow the tangent actually and, and say that it's great that you're able to teach yoga for free and not be reliant on yoga to, you know, make your living wage. And I know that this is something that you, you feel strongly about. So tell us a little bit about your, your day job and how you've been able to weave either the lessons of yoga into it or, um, how they've played nicely together in your life. Sure. Um, I, when I was training for competition, probably five, six years ago, I felt really overwhelmed because I was, you know, working full time at the time I was writing my graduate school thesis. And I just thought like, how am I going to do this? (laughs) How am I going to realize my dreams? And, you know, without quitting my day job and just doing yoga for eight hours a day. And I came across an article that said, like, you can use your day job to help fuel your passions and to look at a broader perspective, like more long term on where you want to be. And right then and there, I wrote down a bunch of different goals and I've written down subsequent goals since then. And I said to myself, even it takes 10 years, I will do these things. And so I feel like having a day job helps me to take a lot of pressure off of, you know, maybe my practice or my teaching and to be able to um, really delve into the passion of it and also to be um, selective on what opportunities that I choose to participate in. Uh, I think like I'm a purist with a little bit of pragmatist, so I suffer a lot <laughs> because um, I'm a little bit uh, like I like things a certain way or like feel like aligned to how I want to teach it. Um, you know, I think right now, for example, in yin yoga, when I first started teaching yin, it was pretty unknown. And so yin's open source. And so there's a lot of, uh, you know, new yin classes coming in and all this stuff. And it's great because it's proliferating. But I feel like the quality is also um, dissipating as well. So for me personally, like aligning with uh, studios that I feel like share my interpretation of yin or if that makes sense, or even within the Bikram communities, aligning with uh, studios where I want to teach that share, like, you know, my philosophy of how I understand the Bikram series. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm a little bit of purist, but I have some pragmatism in there, which makes me suffer yeah. a little bit. Um, and then just like when I took that scan of, okay, you are going to be working, but you can still pursue your passions and your dreams. So what does that mean? So I, you know, I practice a lot during the week and I still work full time, but just getting to the studio half hour early and staying half hour late, that's an hour each day. So if you do that for seven days a week, that's 21 hours a month that practice that you didn't have, that you couldn't, how could you have fit that in? And so um, just doing that successively over the years has really allowed me to have my practice Um, bloom maybe it took a little bit longer but I've learned a lot more about myself over the process and the slow climb up to the top instead of just a helicopter dropping me up at the top Um, so it's I think I think I like to encourage that message to people I think it's like amazing like if you are in a situation where you can just pursue your passion full-time then go for it but then 
also not to get defeated if you have a little bit of both, if you have to find a balance between the two, because you can still taste down your dreams. I've, I've done that completely. Um, I look up, go back to some of my goals and dreams from a few years ago, and they've been realized, um, maybe not as quick as I wanted them to. And also looking for like weekend opportunities too. I think those go undervalued. Like you can travel for a weekend workshop here and there, or there's a lot of teacher trainings now that are offered successively over a period of weekends. So people who work full time or have families can do that as well. So just being a little bit more creative and nuanced at how you are choosing to chase your dream and your passion. So. Yeah. And how cool is that to be able to reflect on your journaling over your goals and say, oh, I did that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's surprising sometimes. And, but it keeps moving. The needle keeps moving all the time. Like, you know, I think that's the yoga practice. That's, that's the, oh, it keeps absolutely. us coming back for more. <laughs> it definitely so. keeps moving. But I think it's important to take this step to reflect and acknowledge that this is where I set the needle before and I passed it because it's very common for a certain personality type that I think I fall into where it's like, well, I'm already onto the next thing and I'm not satisfied. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I can get a little bit locked into that too. And I think when I step back and look back or even just go back through old pictures, like I know you have some transformation pictures and they're amazing and I have some too and it's like wow I feel so grateful for this journey for this climb like the climb made me really strong in the process and to believe in myself and have faith in myself and to trust myself that I never would have gotten had I just had it had it come easy so (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, it's it's really the work that it provides all the benefit it's not having a posture so yeah yeah so it's good to have perspective on that. Hard work is a privilege. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it really is. it's a privilege. So, yeah. Do you have any um any words of advice perhaps for someone who wants to teach yoga or wants to devote more time to their yoga uh practice or study or development but feels burdened by their job? I think there's a lot of, like, think about creative ways to start to infuse that yoga mindset into your day. I mean, I listen to all of your podcasts at work, and it's lovely for me because I can, you know, hear community, hear inspirational thoughts, and be receiving that um, while I'm at my job. I think also, too, like, being a champion for the yoga at work and uh, people who wouldn't normally be exposed to it. You think when you get in the yoga bubble, you think everybody practices yoga and then you go to work and you're on a team of like 20 people and you're the only person that practices Mm -hmm. yoga. And to be able to share that healing modality and to be able to talk about it to people and give them insight. I think, um, I think, Yes, yoga is for everybody. I think there's different methodologies that are better suited for certain types of people than other or people personalities. And just being able to share that as an offering. Um, like I said, you know, half hour before class, half hour after class, that really adds a lot of value into your practice and just making that a priority. And I can, I can get really fixed into all or none mentality and um, trying to shift that from not all or none but to some. So, okay, I couldn't make it to every single class this week that I wanted to, but I did make it to, you know, 
this one or that one, just just em, um, embracing it with more of an abundance mindset instead of a scarcity mindset, I think is the, is the way to do. And just looking for those opportunities to kind of infuse it into your day, maybe meditating for a little bit, or if you take a break at work, um, using that as meditation time as well. Uh, I think it's all yoga. Life is all, all yoga. And all the tools that we learn on the mat, we apply outside of the mat. So, Yeah. Um, is that, does that a, help? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, no, I mean, the, the listeners will be the judge of that, I suppose, but I find that helpful. <laughs> and I also remember a time when I was having to go into the ad agency every day. And I know exactly what you mean, where, you know, half your life, you're at the studio and you're surrounded by people who are thinking about yoga and talking about yoga and living yoga. And it's all yoga all the time. And yes. then you go to the office and people like, they don't even know what it is. I mean, right. and you, why would you blame them for that? But it's important to have that kind of like step back perspective because for the same reasons that we talked about at the beginning with, with the teaching, like you have to remember the perspective that new students come into the door with so that you're not assuming information or assuming a certain paradigm of thinking and being outside yeah. of your bubble in interfacing with people who think differently from you is is so important for everyone and it also gives me a level of like empathy when I have students coming in for the night class you know they've just gotten off work I know what that feels like I've been at a desk all day too I know what their like their body feels like the energy levels and how to like you know if it's the if it's a yin class like I'm gonna ground them and kind of do some cerebral release real quick. If it's like a Bikram class, I'm going to make sure to keep my energy high to pull them through or, you know, so like just having that perspective of maybe a little bit of what your student's day looks like. And, um, I think one thing too, it's like a, uh, faux pas that I avoid is when teachers are like, try and let your day go. Don't think about all that you had to do today. Don't think about your grocery list, like all this stuff. I never say that. <laughs> Because I want them to focus on their body. And I know immediately for me, you know, coming from work, I feel already like all these things that I need to go home and do. And just having a place to just like let that go and not be reminded of that. And to just bring them back into the physical. We become so disembodied throughout our whole day. Like we're sitting with our body. We're like texting. We're doing all this stuff. But we're not even aware of it. And just to take people back to the gateway of the physical and to have them be experiencing that, that that's huge, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's kind of like th that line can be counterproductive, right? Cause as soon as you say, forget about right. the emails, forget about everything you <laughs> yeah. have to do after class immediately. Of course, that's what right. you're going to be thinking right. about. Exactly. Yeah. So instead exactly. give them something different to think yeah. about something gross physical right, right here that you can feel. Yeah. Absolutely. You also talked um, I want to jump back to something that you said a little earlier. You were saying that sometimes you feel the frustration of, you know, I scheduled out all these classes I want to go to. I had this ambitious agenda for what my yoga practice was going to be this week. And then you don't hit it instead of getting frustrated with the opportunities that you missed, you practice an abundance mentality. What does that mean? Um, and maybe give a tip or two for, for the listeners. 
Yeah, sure. I think I got the first few years in my practice, I got really fixated <laughs> on trying to hit like every class. And I did a bunch of those 30 day challenges, which I totally recommend. And they're wonderful. But if you're like a type A personality, it can kind of you lose the substance by grasping at the shadow of what it's trying to get you to do. Mm. And so I feel like yoga practice is cumulative. So just trying to move each day. Um, maybe if you don't get to a class, like how can you move your body? There's three ways to heal the body, which is the chi, the prana, the energy that we bring in through our food. There's kinetic energy, so our movement, and then also our thoughts. So I really try and make take movement into account during the day. And if I don't make it to a class, like how can I move my body? How can I reconnect with my body for that day? And movement can even be like, you know, taking uh, like, you know, just time to just sit and notice notice your body or, you know, using showers to ground your body or taking a walk outside, those kind of things too. And appreciating that as part of the yoga practice. Uh, so just looking at all the classes of cumulative and I felt like because I worked so hard for certain things that I got I was fear-based, meaning that I would worry that, like, my back bend would go away if I missed, like, three classes because it was not something that I had. It was something that I had to to earn and to fight for. And, um, you know, just trusting my body a little bit more that it will remember it um, even if I don't make it to class that, that day. It will be there t- tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just that trust and not being so fear-based. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been through that. I know, I know what you mean. It's also addictive. (laughs) Um, it's totally addictive when you, you do this thing that makes you feel so good. And then you're like, well, am I feeling good about doing it? Or am I feeling bad about not doing it? Like I have to weigh those two things. And ultimately, you know, if you practice yoga for 60 minutes a day or 90 minutes a day, it's not those 60 minutes or 90 minutes that's going to change your life. It's what you take out of it and what gets permeated through every step you take and every thought you that goes through your mind. It's only if it actually gets integrated. So those those moments of concentrated effort are there as a way to lay a foundation more than that's the be all end all. Yes, exactly. Precisely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yoga is just a a means. Uh, it's the science for accessing ourselves. And if we're just focused on the science and not accessing ourselves, like once again, we're losing the substance of it while grasping at the shadows. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Okay. Jordan, apart from getting your message out on this podcast, what are you doing today to live your dharma? Uh, today to live my dharma. Well, I, I right now, um, I'm this time in my life. I'm asked to really extend love in a limitless way, and it's been a really confusing and painful process for me. But I'm trying to meet it with a lot of compassion and patience, and to really offer that love without limits, and to not be so attached to uh, what I want. And instead looking at like the greater need of love. I know that's really ambiguous, but that is where I am. I've been really living that um, for a few months now. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I'll let you leave it ambiguous because I think <laughs> that's something that 
when left without specific uh, conditions, it allows for everyone to have their own personal interpretation. And I think any way that someone chooses to interpret that will be beneficial. So yeah, yeah, appreciate that. (laughs) Okay, well, now is the time to move on to the final section of the interview. This is the prana round. I'm going to ask you six rapid fire questions and ask you to answer minimum one word, maximum one sentence. Okay, okay. You ready to do it? Sure. Okay. In one word, why do you practice yoga? Uh, liberation. What is your favorite yoga pose and why? Ooh, uh, full cobra, the flying version, because I feel like it's the ultimate representation of shedding of skins. Mm. Is the flying version where you keep your legs touching the floor and then you lift your chest up and grab your knees? Yes. Yes, exactly. That, yes, exactly. That one's yeah. tough. That's a tough one. Yeah. I love that one. So, what, yeah, absolutely. What, what is the single best cue or piece of advice that you've ever received from a teacher? Always be the student. Recommend one book, either modern or ancient, for our audience. Uh, it's not a yoga book, but The That's Little okay. Prince, I think is, uh, it's very simple, but there's really profound truths in it. So. Cool. Is yoga for everyone? I think you mentioned this earlier, but I'll let you answer again. Yes, absolutely. Yoga is for everyone. <laughs> so. Okay. Last question. How can our audience get in touch with you and how can we support you in your Dharma? Uh, you can get in touch with me on Facebook, Jordan Lydia or Instagram, Jordan Lydia underscore Yogini. And uh, how can you help live your Dharma? Uh, just encourage yourself to be limitless and look at other people without limits whatever that means in your life um, it can be beyond the physical yoga postures but just embracing um, each other and the uniqueness and yeah <laughs> I hope that that helps <laughs> so. okay look at everyone including yourself as limitless thank you yes. Jordan <laughs> Lydia for coming on Dharma Talk today yeah it's thank you so- Henry I really appreciate it so yeah my pleasure thank you Yeah, have a wonderful day. Hey, Dharma Talk community. If you enjoyed this podcast and you haven't done so already, please hit the subscribe button right now. And if you'd like to show your support even more, leave me an honest review on iTunes or whatever podcast directory you listen on. You can also make a financial contribution to keep the show up and running, a donation at henrywins.com. And remember, I'm here to serve you. So if you have any questions or comments or ideas, you can always reach me on Instagram at Henry Wins. Otherwise, I'll speak to you next week. Keep living your dharma.